you to the Consortium of the History of Science for hosting this presentation and conversation. I'm Leah Markey, the Director of the Center for Renaissance Studies at the Newbury Library, where I oversee conferences, symposia, workshops, seminars, and digital humanities projects devoted to pre-modern studies. I've spent the past years preparing an exhibition devoted to invention and technology in the Renaissance, inspired by the Nova Reperta print series. Here's the frontispiece for the engraved series. The project at the Newbury has entailed a graduate course in the International Symposium and a publication that recently came out with Northwestern University Press. We are now in the process of developing related digital resources as well. The exhibition, co-curated with Suzanne Karschmidt, was originally scheduled to open in April 2020, but due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the show has been postponed until fall 2020. My talk today derives from my essays in the publication that complements the exhibition. Today, I'll introduce you to the renowned print series in its historical context and present some themes for a conversation with Joel Moker and Paula Finland, devoted to technology then and now. Let's begin with the frontispiece of the Nova Aperta. It's an example of a self-consciously modern image. It revels in its state-of-the-art mechanical invention by presenting a printing press directly beneath its hovering printed title. Flanking this cutting-edge reproductive technology are two roundels. The one on the left displays a map of the new world, while the one on the right, a compass. Together with the personification of the past who turns his back to the viewer and a personification of the future who points to the Americas, the upper register of the print makes a case for the main vehicles of change in the Renaissance. The bottom of the page reinforces this claim with its disparate array of significant inventions, such as silkworms on a mulberry tree, the stirrup, the iron clock, the cannon, distillation tools, and guayacum, which was thought to be a cure for syphilis. The series that this image announces is composed of 19 other engravings, each representing a new invention within a social or historical setting, often playing with temporality and place. The images in this series appear in the following order. America, the magnet compass, gunpowder, printing press, iron clock, cure for syphilis, distillation, silk, stirrups, watermill, windmill, olive oil press, sugar refinery, oil painting, eyeglasses, longitude, polishing armor, astrolabe, and engraving. These fantastical re representations borrow imagery from sources as diverse as genre painting, festivals, emblem books, cartography, travel literature, and scientific and historical treatises. It's believed that the first nine engravings in the series were commissioned first, since they relate to the inventions in the frontispiece. After these nine engravings, there does not seem to be any hierarchy to the order of the ten prints that followed, though some of them in sequence relate to one another, such as the watermill and windmill, energy, olive press and sugar refinery connect to the production of substances, and oil painting and eyeglasses connected through visuality. One of the central objectives of this project has been to understand why these unusual prints were made and how and what they can inform us of the conception of technology in the late 16th century. In turn, we're hoping that audiences of the exhibition will question the role of technology in today's world. In the remaining minutes of this short introductory talk, I'll explain where, when, and why the prints were designed, and then take a closer look at the engraving representing syphilis, before concluding with some discussion topics. 
As is common in 16th century engravings, the captions on the Nova Reparator engravings make clear that the production was the result of a collaboration between the designer or inventor, Stradano, the printmaker and publisher, Halle, and the dedicatee or patron, Alamani. Originally from Flanders, Stradano, who also went by Stradanus and van der Stripe, was by the 1560s a relatively well-known independent artist living in Florence. He established a partnership with the Halle, a family who ran a print publishing house in Antwerp, where most of his print designs, such as the engravings in this series, were produced initially under Philip Halle, around 1591. A quick visual comparison between the engravings themselves and Stradano's finished preparatory drawings for the prints make clear that the printmakers reproduced Stradano's drawings with great precision and had minimal input into the content or style of the prints. They did control when the prints would be published, how much they cost, and where they would be sold and distributed. At least four editions of the Nova Reparta series were printed between 1591 and 1638, indicating that they were quite popular images. Because of this collaboration with these northern printmakers, Stradano produced detailed preparatory drawings for the prints, inscribed with notes to the engravers. The preparatory drawings are informative of Stradano's relationship with his patron, Luigi Alamani. Luigi Alamani Fiorentino is named on the Nova Reparta frontispiece as the series dedicatee. A learned nobleman in Florence who had exchanged letters with such notable figures as Galileo, Luigi was an active member of the Accademia degli Alterati, a small literary academy that developed in Florence in 1569. My research has shown that the Nova Reparta engravings can be linked to specific discussions and texts read at the academy. But Alamani and Stradano's idea to create a catalogue of major inventions of the period was not new, but rather evokes a genre of cataloging novelty dating back to Pliny. We make this point clear in the exhibition, and Paula will be speaking a bit more about this new genre of writing about technology and invention in the Renaissance in her presentation. What is unusual about Stradano and Alamani's project is that it is a visual compendium. Stradano's images are similar to paintings in Florence produced under Medici Grand Dukes Francesco and Ferdinando, representing novelty and materiality, such as these panels in Francesco's Studiolo or Stanzino in the Palazzo Vecchio. Both paintings and prints were designed to provoke conversation about the changing world of the late 16th century. They both represent a particular classification of knowledge and of man's ability to transform nature. Furthermore, like the Studiolo paintings, many prints represent discoveries and developments from different parts of the world, together revealing a global economy. This point about globalization brings me to the syphilis engraving, which in turn will allow us to think about our current situation. Guayacum represents the sixth engraving in the series. Here, a sick man lying in bed drinks from a cup in a candlelit room. At his side, an attendant administers his medicine. A physician stands over him holding a plant, representing the cure. A painting on the wall reveals an amorous encounter and references the way in which the man fell ill. In the kitchen, in the adjoining room, two women cook up the cure, and a man labors at cutting a piece of wood. The caption translates as guayacum and venereal disease. And then, drinking that concoction of the tree will relieve the weak limbs weighted down by this disease. These Latin words help to elucidate the representation of a bedridden patient drinking the cure in the image and the role of the guayacum as the early modern so-called miracle drug. Scholars have related this print to Girolamo Fracastro's popular poem, Syphilis Morbus Gallicus, from 1530, a source Stradano knew well. Stradano's image should also be examined in relation to the many other texts written about the disease and the drug from the later part of the 16th century. 
and knowledge of the disease and this cure would have been predicated by events taking place in Medici Florence. By the late 16th century, syphilis was generally believed to be a New World disease, and it was thought that guayacum, a plant that came from the Americas as well, was the best cure for it. One of the main textual sources for this print was likely a lesson that discusses the use of guayacum written by Luca Guini, a botanist under Medici Grand Duke Cosimo I, published posthumously in 1589, just when this print was produced. Guayacum is considered to be an improvement over the use of mercury, and was taken for a variety of ailments. Examination of the records of ships entering Livorno near Florence shows that the importation of the plant increased throughout the 1580s, just before this print was designed. Syphilis featured prominently in 16th century material and visual culture, and though ineffectual, guayacum acted as the wonder drug of the late decades and was here considered to be a great invention. So this image provides us with ways to think about the very conception of invention itself, here, disease led to a purported medical innovation. These images can steer us into conversations about the ways in which technological invention can often be accidental or serendipitous, a point Joel has made in his publications. Here is a conclusion, then I'll introduce three themes that run through the Newbury exhibition that could act as a point of departure for discussion. First, the relationship between the local and the global. In this case of guayacum, a Caribbean plant was thought to cure a New World disease that was ravaging a local community in Florence. Second, the role of collaboration for invention. Many of the prints in the series represent groups of people making and processing new materials. Finally, the negative impact of some new discoveries. The complex invention of gunpowder epitomizes this theme. So I'll conclude here and introduce our next speakers. Paula Finland is the Ubaldo Pierotti Professor of Italian History at Stanford University, where she also serves as the director of the Sufis Center for the History of Philosophy of Science and Technology. She's the author of numerous books, including Possessing Nature, Museums Collecting and Scientific Culture in Early Modern Italy, Merchants and Marvels, Commerce, Science, and Art in Early Modern Europe, and in 2019, Leonardo's Library, The World of a Renaissance Theater. Joel Moker is the Robert H. Strutz Professor of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Economics and History at Northwestern University. He studies the economic history of Europe, specializing in the early modern and modern period. His recent research has been concerned with the understanding of the economic and intellectual roots of technological progress and the growth of useful knowledge in European societies, as well as the impact that industrialization and economic progress have had on economic welfare. He's published widely, including A Culture of Growth, Origins of the Modern Economy, which won the Alan Sharlin Prize of the Social Science History Association. He serves as editor-in-chief of the Princeton University Press Economic History of the Western World Book Series. Thanks, Leah, for that lovely introduction. And it's a great pleasure to be here today talking with you about Renaissance Inventions on Paper, and reflecting on the wonderful exhibit you've put together on Stradonis and his world and how it makes us think about ideas about invention and discovery and entrepreneurship during the 16th century. So I wanted to just start by reflecting a little bit in broader context about what we see when we look at Stradonis's uh, Nova Reperta, right, his new discoveries around 1588. What kind of image of the world has he put together? 
And as always, we start with the most famous of these images, which is the image of the frontispiece, the image of the nine items that he assembles together in this. America, the magnet, gunpowder, the printing press, the mechanical clock, guaicum, this marvelous wood from the New World, cure syphilis, the art of distillation, the silkworm, and of course, the humble but absolutely transformative stirrup. So what is it that these nine items are designed to tell us when we put them together visually? Well, what I would like to do is to reflect on them in light of some of the work that I've been doing on Leonardo da Vinci and to think about the way in which these visual images, right, of invention and discovery might be juxtaposed to the images that Leonardo offers us of some, but not all of them. So let's start, for instance, in thinking about Leonardo da Vinci's famous image of the foundry, right? This is one of the few instances where Leonardo gives us an image not of an individual machine or machine parts, right? Not an anatomy of a machine or an anatomy of a process, but instead an image of an entire idealized foundry with these very small men and these very, very large cannons, an endless array of them, one front and center, the mechanisms to transport them, and then, of course, this vast production of cannons. This is the world of Renaissance Milan, the center of the arms and armament industry in the late 15th and early 16th century. Now, when we juxtapose this to Stradonis's image of the making of gunpowder, both of these images have a lot of cannonry in them. But Leonardo's goal is, of course, quite different than Stradonis's. It's not to celebrate what you put inside the cannon, but it is really to think about the making of the cannon itself, the making of this object that is depicted on the frontispiece of Stradonis's Nova Reperta, but also, of course, then in his specific depiction of gunpowder. For Leonardo, the canon is all about the Sforza horse. It's all about a whole set of other things that he is trying to make and cast. Works of art, these military technologies are all part of his world as a Renaissance artist and engineer. Stradonis is also looking at this world almost a century later, but not for the same reasons. He's not somebody who becomes a military engineer who parlays his skills as an artist into doing these kinds of things. So I want us to just kind of quickly start by thinking about what these juxtapositions tell us about what's happened during the century from Leonardo and the world that Stradonis introduces us to in the late 16th century. Now let's look at Stradonis's depiction of his iron mechanical clock, of this partly assembled clock, of clock making as one of these great inventions and discoveries, not obviously of the 16th century, but of the 13th century. Now, we know that Leonardo draws clocks. He's fascinated with clocks. The clock assemblage is the basis for his famous drawing of the so-called automata. So here I've juxtaposed Leonardo's drawing of one of the most famous medieval clocks, Giovanni Dondi's astronomical clock from a previous century. And here we see Leonardo drawing the mechanism that give you the movements of Venus in relationship to the sun. And what I want to point out from this specific image is the way in which Leonardo is doing something that Stradonis never does. Stradonis gives us the idea of the parts. When we look at his image of the mechanical clock, we certainly see lots of 
machine parts that go into assembling this kind of clock on the ground, inside the clock itself that's being assembled at the center, in the background, in clocks that are being adjusted, where the escapement is partly open. But what we don't see him doing is lovingly focusing on anatomizing the machine, which is the characteristic feature of what Leonardo does, right? He anatomizes machines. Famously, in a different drawing that also is another clock drawing, Leonardo gives us the spring coil mechanism. He really shows you this is one of his most beautiful machine drawings, simple but full of information in how he visually captures the spring coil and its relationship to the tooth gears that, of course, will make the clock work. Instead, of course, when we do a close-up of parts of the beautiful engravings that Gall and his workshop do in Antwerp of Stradonis's drawings, we see the mechanisms, sort of. We see enough of them to get the idea. Clearly, Stradonis has seen what the inside of a clock is, but is he really interested in how it works? I don't think so. I think that is a fundamental distinction between Leonardo and, and Stradonis. And then lastly, the other juxtaposition I want to offer you to just continue with us thinking with Leonardo and Stradonis together is water mills. Leonardo is, as we know from the Codex Lester, obsessed with water, obsessed with how water works, obsessed with all the technologies related to water. And both of them provide images of the water mill. So let's look at what Stradonis does. Stradonis gives us a scene of activity, right? A scene of all the things that are going on around the water mill. He wants to show us the water mill the way Leonardo shows us the foundry, but never shows us the water mill filled with people who are doing business, who are making things, using the harnessing of this force of nature to do all these things. What Leonardo, again, wants to do is to show us all the mechanisms, to show us the machine together, to show us the parts, to allow us to follow the design of each and every crank and gear and screw, the turning of the screw. You can almost see the wheels working. And again, Stradonis gives us, when we look closely in the background, where we can see the wheels of the mold, he has looked at these. Enough to get the basic idea, but he is not giving us the kind of rich, detailed information about a machine that Leonardo offers. And so I say this not to compare one unfavorably to the other, hardly, but to really sort of say that these are very, very different projects, and yet they are both about invention and the knowledge that comes from it. Now, I mentioned this also to say that Stradonis's sources, I think, in what he puts together in his collaboration with his patron, Luigi Alimani, are much more textual than visual. And in fact, there's a reason we spend a lot more time talking about the text that informed his images in the Nova Reperta, because we can see a literal relationship between early texts like Giovanni Tortelli's De Orthographia, this very early discussion in the midst of definitions of words, Greek words that appear in Latin texts and how we understand them. And when Tortelli arrives at the word for clock, we've just talked about clocks, he then launches into a discussion of two dozen inventions since antiquity, two dozen medieval to early 15th century inventions. And he then tells us from this, we may conclude that we can find new names to new things. We can fit new names to new things as the ancients continually did. We have to keep finding new words for all the new discoveries, the new knowledge 
and the new inventions that we have. So for him, this is a very textual and philological humanist enterprise of discovery, as it also is for Polydor Virtual half a century later in his book on discovery that's first printed in the Latin original in 1499 and becomes quite a bestseller. And I think there are something like over 30 editions by the mid-16th century. This is a book in wide circulation and in many translations. And I want to draw everyone's attention to the fact that this Italian edition that I'm showing you here is published in Florence in 1587. So right before the moment that Stradanus is putting together his Nova Reperta. This is not an unlikely source to literally juxtapose to the making of these marvelous images and their engravings. And again, Polydor Virgil is the first person to put together a massive encyclopedia. You can read the English translation that Brian Copenhaver did wonderfully some years ago in the Itati series. And it's mostly about not modern, but ancient inventions. It's an archaeology of inventions. It's sorting out all the various nebulous and conflicting things people have said about inventions. And then Virgil reserves a final chapter for the modern inventions. And he clearly is a reader of Tortelli. So he mostly replicates not the entire list of two dozen, but enough of it. And then he adds in three new inventions two of which will probably make you laugh for those who don't know the text. One is the beret, the other is long hose, so two fashion inventions of the late 15th century. And then the last one, not surprisingly, is the printing press. And as Virgil tells us, there are many inventions, both old and new, whose authors are unknown. But he, of course, is at pains to make sure that we know who the inventor is of the printing press, not the beret, not the long hose, but the printing press. And he tells us what he knows about Gutenberg and why he should be known. Now, lastly, again, in thinking about this textual world that I think is the more immediate source and inspiration for this project that Alimani and Stradanus basically do together as a collaboration between the patron and the artist, I want to mention a contemporary work that appears after Stradanus does his initial work. As these prints begin to come out, you know, are out and beginning to circulate and they're expanding it to the full 20. And this, of course, is Guido Panciaroli's delightful Two Books of Things lost and things found. The first volume appears in 1599 and then the second in 1602. And I've put up here also the English translation. But I want people to note that many of the Latin editions called this book the Nova Reperto. So many people, as has been said in the catalog that Leah's put together, many people, when they thought about Nova Reperta at the beginning of the 17th century, thought of Panciaroli and not actually of the Stradanus illustrations. But again, what I want to do is to point you to the content, not of the things that are lost in Panciaroli, but the things that are found. And in particular, in his second book, what he calls, as the English translation describes it, some modern inventions unknown to the ancients. And I put up here the table of contents for the second book to get you to see, looking at this, how many of these modern inventions are also in Stradanus's Nova Reperta. It begins with the New World. Sugar is the fifth chapter in the second volume. There's a chapter on distillation. There, of course, is one on clocks, followed by the Mariner's Compass, followed by printing. 
we go a little further down, and by chapter 15, we have spectacles. Chapter 16 includes stirrups with saddles and horseshoes, so he's expanded the category. We don't have a chapter that says gunpowder, but we have guns, Greek fire, things related. We have a chapter on mills. And finally, there is also a chapter on woven silks or the silken web. And he returns to the issue of printing at the end, or I should say the English translator adds more to what Pancioli could tell us circa 1600 about printing when they come to do this edition in the early 18th century. And I want to kind of quote what Pancioli has to say, because I I think it's very much related to this whole story, which is Pancioli tells a story about the origins of printing circa 1440 that you don't see in Polydor Virgil. And of course, you see none of this in Tortelli because the printing press is only just in the process of being invented when he writes. So he doesn't even know to talk about that. And he tells a story that printing may have happened because some German traveling back from China through the Baltic brought the Chinese art of printing that was then transformed and made into this European invention. And I mentioned this story that Pancioli tells, and he then talks about seeing some Chinese printing and makes the comment that it's not typographic. It's not like the European invention. So he does make a distinction while telling the story that the German invention of printing is Chinese inspired. I mention this because I think it's an interesting way to think of both of these two projects, the Nova Reperta in print by Pancioli and the visual Nova Reperta by Stradanus as projects that really point to the centrality of printing as a kind of alpha and omega, right, as a real litmus test for what it means to think about a discovery that, is it European? Is it Chinese? Is it modern? Is it ancient? Where exactly does the innovation lie? It lies in the typography. But that it has a certain globality about it is also the key thing. So again, when we go back to the frontispiece of Stradonis's work, we have to always start with the fact that the printing press is literally being shot out of the canon that represents the invention of gunpowder. The printing press is front and center, dividing the discovery of America from, of course, the invention of the magnetic compass. Now, let me return to Polydor Virgil and what he has to say about printing in 1499. He says, in one day, just one person can print the same number of letters that many people could hardly write in a whole year. Books in all disciplines have poured out to us so profusely from this invention. And he then adds, the inventor of so great a thing should not be cheated of his glory. He wants to name this inventor. Posterity ought to know to whom it should credit the divine favor it has received. And we know from the preparatory drawings and the notes on them that originally there had been some attention to capturing the German doctor, as these notes tell us, who's the inventor of printing. There had been an attention that actually doesn't fully make its way into the final image of printing in Stradatus, in the full depiction of printing that I'll get to in a moment. But this concern about crediting printing is, I think, again, a reminder of why it's so central from the work of Polydor Virgil into the images that Stradanus gives us almost a century later. 
But let's now think about how people depict printing, because it's not only Stradanus. Stradanus's image of the printing press and its uses is certainly the most famous. But I want to point out that long prior to that, early artists, and I'll get to Leonardo in a second, also were fascinated with depicting the printing press. So for instance, I'm giving you here Albrecht Dürer's famous drawing of a printing press that he does early in the 16th century and certainly is thinking about in terms of the printing of images as well as words. So I think we should think of the many ways in which Dürer is anticipating the things that Stradanus fully works out in his images. And when we juxtapose Dürer's image to Stradanus's famous image of the print shop, we recognize the similarity of the basic structure of the printing press that Dürer depicts as also being only slightly modified and updated in the famous engraved image of the print shop with this image of the printing press in the center of this beehive of activity, printers and apprentices and all the things that they are doing that is the business of printing itself. And again, I wanted to just return people to this discussion that Pancioli offers on printing to just give you the exact text. Pancioli says, writing not long after Stradanus has done his images, "'Tis reported that one sailing through the German or Baltic Ocean,' he writes, "'happened to be carried into China.'" So this is an accidental discovery where he observed the art of printing to be in use and then, of course, brings it back and modifies it in ways that even Pancioli can't quite capture, but is puzzling over. I don't know if there's any origins of the story prior to Pancioli, but I'm completely fascinated with this. And I think, again, it underscores an interesting idea. Is there a way in which both Stradanus and Pancioli are thinking about printing as a global art, as the emblem of a global art? Because by the late 16th century, there are printing presses in many different parts of the world, largely thanks to the Jesuit missionaries who want to print religious books, whether it's in Mexico City or Goa or Macau. Ultimately, printing is indeed becoming globalized. So I think it's interesting that Stradanus, in some ways, helps us to see that and to see this also as an invention in relationship to an older series of inventions that have emerged in the later Middle Ages, somewhere between the mid-12th and 13th century, the spectacles, the stirrup, the mills, the magnetic compass, and of course the mechanical clock. And then these much more recent discoveries that are of the 15th century, America, Guayacum, copper engraving, of course, which I'll get to in a second, probably armor polishing, though I can't be sure about that. Last but hardly least, the printing press. Longitude is an interesting one because longitude is more like what Pancioli would say, a desideratum, a wish list item, something we hope to eventually have, but we are working on, we have begun to work on it. So it's interesting that longitude ultimately will also end up in Stradanus and Pancioli's projects as something in process a task not yet accomplished, but something everyone is hoping for because it's entangled with all of these other things that they have done. All right, now I wanna to turn to, of course, the other side of the alpha or omega of printing, which is the fact that Stradanus's most important innovation besides visualizing the print workshop in this very complete and fascinating way that he does is to end his entire series of 20 images with his image of the art of engraving. And so Stradanus gives us this fabulous image that 
is not in any of the textual accounts of invention and discovery. Virgil doesn't talk about it. Pancioroli, if he talks about it, it's buried somewhere in the discussion of printing. So to my knowledge, it's certainly not a separate item that he singles out because this is the art aside. This is something that if Durer was doing this kind of project, he would have done as well, right? He would have immediately said the art of engraving is one of the most important things that comes out of the printing press. It's not just the press, but it's also how it has transformed and allowed us to discover new ways of making images. What I want to conclude right now with my remarks on how we can contextualize Stradonis is I now want to return to Leonardo and his own interest in image making, and yes, his interest in the printing press, which is something I've been thinking about quite a bit since I did this exhibit last year on Leonardo's library. So I want you to keep in mind the image that Stradanus offers us of the art of engraving, where we see the paper being pressed and pulled through on top of the metal copper sheets where the engraving is done to create the images from the ink sheets. Okay, so now I'm going to give you one, the earliest of the images, there are two of them, where Leonardo draws a printing press. And he does this one when he's still in Florence. It's in the Codex Atlanticus. And so what do we see when we look at this particular image? We see way over on the upper far left, the upper carriage of the screw press in some detail. Then we look closer to the center and we now get this kind of fairly complete drawing of some kind of press. We can see that there is a sheet of paper between the platen and the what is presumably a moving table. So there's been some attention to really looking at the details. We see this big lever. And then we see at the top something rather puzzling, a big, large toothed gear. So yeah, this is one of Leonardo's visual anatomies. Circa 1480, he is visually anatomizing the printing press. And as he so often does, he gives us a short note. The note below the picture of the upper carriage of the screw press says simply this. This screw needs two spiral shafts, one below, the other above. That's it. Needs two spiral shafts, one below, the other above. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. What is he thinking about? What kind of press is this? And what is it making? And did he actually see this press? Or is this one of these moments where he's thinking from machines that he sees and changing them, altering them on paper to make a somewhat different kind of machine? We simply don't know. We have no example of a press exactly like this. So we have to read as best we can from the image, as well as from what's going on with printing in Florence over a century before Stradonis does his Nova Reperta. That large toothed gear, is it there to increase the speed, the pressure, the uniformity? You know, it's probably something like that. And the more I've looked at this, the more I've thought about this as an example, not of a press for printing words, but probably a press for printing images. That this is some kind of thought experiment for an intaglio press. Because indeed, if you go back to the Stradonis image, and think about the large rotating wheel that is a standard feature of the intaglio press that's on the side to pull the images, and we just simply put it on the top. Well, that would be one of the ideas people might have based on how machines were at that time. So I want to just kind of get you thinking that Leonardo does this drawing exactly in the period in which a printer named Nicholas the German, obviously has arrived as a foreigner, has been 
trying to work on how to integrate Baccio Bandinelli's engravings of Botticelli's drawings for a printed edition of Cristoforo Landino's famous commentary on Dante. The book appears in 1481 without most of the images because it's a complete and utter failure. It's a cultural success. It's a great moment of Landino's famous commentary on Dante is printed. It's presented to the Florentines in a highly ceremonial way, but I think with about at best 19 of the images because they just couldn't figure out how to bring the words and images together. So I think Leonardo does this drawing in the context of that failure. And I think this is when he begins to think about the problem of his day which is not the problem of Stradonis's time because they have resolved many of these issues, which is the limits of printing as much as the possibilities. He, in other words, is living still with the newness of the technology. Let's not forget that Leonardo da Vinci basically is born with the printing press. He's born in 1452. So Leonardo is thinking about what printing can and can't do as an artist. And I think that's actually very interesting to juxtapose to the manifold success of what Stradonis and the Gaul workshop in Antwerp are able to do between Florence and Antwerp. I want to remind people that Leonardo actually paints a book not a printed book, surely, but a codex, the kind of Florentine manuscript book that the workshops of Florence were famous for. Florence had built up an enormous success in what it meant to create a manuscript book of the kind that we see Leonardo depicting some years before he draws the printing press in the Annunciation, where he makes it almost animated, translucent. There are many things to say about this depiction of a book that is made by hand and not by machine. But I think this is also a kind of clue for the kind of ways he is looking at the printed book and the machines with which we print words and images. Ultimately, Leonardo will spend, at various points, I think, some time in his life thinking about whether it is possible to print images in a way that satisfies his very high standards. Around 1504, so late in life as he is working on his great anatomical atlas, he writes down a recipe for what we would call nowadays relief etching as a possibility. It is one way to directly transfer through a mechanical art the kind of image making that he is doing and has developed the style of putting words and images together. So he never, to my knowledge, actually does this experiment, but the fact he writes down a recipe for how to do it and also writes notes to the future heirs of his manuscripts to invest in doing this more expensive technique, as he puts it, is a sign that he really is interested in eventually imagining a future in which one can, by machine, reproduce images that will meet the high quality that he has achieved through drawing. So let me end here with a couple of, again, fun facts to help contextualize Stradonis's Nova Reperta as a, a very Florentine project. Florence, as many of you know, was not one of the major centers for the printed book, unlike the manuscript book. The first Florentine printed book, however, was done with great fanfare, not by Nicholas the German or any foreign printer, but in fact by a Florentine artisan who had been a silk worker and then a goldsmith. He worked in the studio of Ghiberti named Bernardo Cennini. And in 1471, he publishes just one book he never publishes again with his sons, Domenico and Piero. It's a fourth century commentary on Virgil that was being published in a number of cities. It's a Latin book. It has this amazing colophon. And I just 
just want to draw your attention to one key thing he says at the end after describing his reputation as a goldsmith and the work of his son, Domenico, who cut the type, and the scholarly work of his son, Piero, clearly the one with the education, who instead worked on the manuscript itself and bringing a high-quality humanist manuscript into print. And then he simply says, nothing is too difficult for Florentine genius. Well, this was certainly a kind of great phrase from a world that had produced Brunelleschi, Alberti, and of course, ultimately produces Leonardo. But in fact, printing and especially illustrating books actually was kind of difficult for Florence. There's a reason, as we all know, that Stradanus did not engrave the Nova Reperta in Florence. He went to Antwerp a real center for engraving, Florence never was. So in fact, there were challenges to Florentine genius, and they begin in this early decades, right, of the arrival of print. And as it turns out, there is a continuity to that story. They are not fully resolved in Stradonis's time to the extent that even with his project being exceptionally Florentine and celebrating Vespucci and generally presenting Florence as a city full of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial ideas and ready to embrace and channel and harness all sorts of discoveries. This is the Florence that's going to try under Ferdinando to found a sugar colony in Brazil some years after Stradonis does his prince. It's a Florence that is importing tons of guayacum. It's a Florence that, of course, has long invested in the spectacle-making industry, which was an important industry for them. Not as important as silk, obviously, or olive oil for that matter. These are all examples of Florentine inventiveness. Printing is not one of them. This is the kind of hollow story, and especially the printing of images. So let me end here by having you look at what Leonardo says about printing in the work that we know today as his treatise on painting, the writings that are assembled after his death on painting into this treatise. And he says famously, painting does not produce endless children. Fiore infiniti, as printed books do, she alone is unique and never gave birth to children who are exactly like her. And this singularity makes her more excellent than those that are published everywhere. And I've juxtaposed the Mona Lisa as the example of the singular painting that he surely has in mind, without, of course, specifically referring to any painting as he does here. But he's not necessarily saying that printing isn't good on its own terms, but in this pedagone, in this comparison between painting and printed things, right, printing produces endless children, lots and lots of the same thing but the painting always has the potential to be unique. So this for me is the essential tension for Leonardo is how to bring that uniqueness. How can a machine in some way be faithful to the uniqueness of not just a painting, very complex, but even a drawing, which is the problem he's really trying to work out and never fully resolves. Let's compare this to the inscription at the bottom of Stradonis's work on his image of the print shop, where he says, printing books, just as one voice can be heard by a multitude of ears, so single writings cover a thousand sheets. So now, of course, again, that multitude, the multiplication that printing produces 
is a positive thing. It extends reputation. It's not just, of course, about writings. Ultimately, we know the image of the print shop, besides the frontispiece of Nova Reperta, has been probably the most reproduced image ever out of Stradonis. More people know that image than they know the name of the person who created it, in my opinion. It's on the cover of Elizabeth Eisenstein's printing press of An Agent in Change. It's on the cover of Print Quarterly. It's, you know, in so many different places. And in conclusion, I want to juxtapose, to move away for a moment from Leonardo, from this guy who is trying to figure out what printing can and can't do in the century before Stradonis. I want to instead turn to Stradonis's contemporary, Agostino Romelli, who in the same year that Stradonis is probably finishing up the Nova Reperta, publishes a book called The Various and Ingenious Machines that he dedicates to his patron, the King of France, Henry III. And this is a book filled with water wheels and military devices and how to build temporary bridges, all sorts of useful things that we need to know. And of course, the most famous image in Romelli's book that has 195 images of machines, many, many more than Stradonis's Nova Reperta, you know, not intended to be selective, but comprehensive, is this image of the book wheel. And here instead, of course, Romelli is giving us the image of what kind of machine would we like and would we imagine wanting to have to read more efficiently all those infinite children, that 1,000 pages. And he says, this wheel is made in the manner shown. That is, it's constructed so that when the books are laid on its lecterns, they never fall or move from the place where they are laid, even as the wheel is turned and revolved all the way around. So he's solving a problem. Because if instead they're static, they're going to just fall off, and this will be a completely useless device, an exercise in scholarly vanity. Indeed, they will always remain in the same position, he writes, and will be displayed to the reader in the same way as they were laid on their small lecterns without any need to tie or hold them with anything. And then he shows you the escapement and he says, get a good, a master artisan who really understands this and he'll be able to make these wheels from my specifications. So he is much more interested, like Leonardo, in giving you that machine drawing and showing you how to, even from a somewhat idealized portrait. So I end this by just getting you to think about how to see Stradonis between the age of Leonardo and his anatomizing of machines and focusing on some, but not all, of the discoveries that we see in Stradonis's Nova Reperta, and somebody like Agostino Romelli, who embodies the way in which books of machines become a popular genre in the late 16th and certainly the 17th century. So again, thank you very much for the invitation to be part of this project, and I look forward to further discussion. Joel Mulker is the Robert H. Strutz Professor of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Economics and History at Northwestern University. So the title of this lecture is The Significance of Early Modern Europe for the Future of Economic Growth. It's based on a paper I published two years ago in Explorations in Economic History, which has you know all kinds of footnotes and references and details that I will have to skip, of course, today. And the paper is based on what many professional historians are going to think of as an extremely naive question, which is, why was there so little economic growth before the Industrial Revolution? Now, some modern economists actually have gone so far and to argue that there was basically no growth at all before the Industrial Revolution and that living standards anywhere in the world, say around 1800, were not significantly different than they had been at the time of, say, Julius Caesar. Now, 
To me and to many others, that seems a little bit exaggerated. But I think there's a consensus that everybody agrees on that growth, such as it was before the Industrial Revolution, was very, very different than what it is in modern times and what we've gotten used to. To start with, it was much, much slower. Insofar that these things can be measured at all, which is questionable, scholars have agreed that per capita GDP growth in the long term before the Industrial Revolution may have been something around 0.1% a year, which is, of course, extremely slow. Even though if you compound it over hundreds and hundreds of years, it still means a growth in living standards. But in contrast, by the 19th century, after the Industrial Revolution, it's uh, GDP per capita is growing, at least in Europe, at about 1% a year, and in the 20th century, more by 2% a year. And I think that's, that's where we are right now, at least before the pandemic hit. Uh, the other way in which growth before the Industrial Revolution was different is that it's readily reversible. A major event, a major shock, like a war or an, an epidemic, could cause serious economic decline from which there was no real recovery. And that could last for hundreds and hundreds of years. One can think, of course, about the conquest of Mesopotamia by the Mongols in 1258 or the decline of the Roman Empire or the German Thirty Years' War. These, these things had lingering effects that could go on for not for decades, but for centuries. The third way in which growth was different is that it was primarily based on what we call in economics Smithian effects relatively little productivity growth or technological change. Instead, we had gains from trade and specialization, better allocation of resources, more commerce, more finance, things like that. Much of this was due to improved law and order, determination of wars, and things of that nature. Now, there's no question that this kind of growth can produce considerable wealth, but it tends to run into diminishing returns, as we say in economics, and therefore may not have been sustainable. One thinks, for instance, of the success of the Dutch Republic in the 16th and 17th century. You know, by 1650 or so, they had exhausted most of the potential of these commercial gains, and the economy stagnated for the next two centuries. So here is a graph that gives you some kind of sense of what this looks like, and you can sort of see that there are periods of growth, if you look, for instance, at the Netherlands here, which is the orange line, you see there's a sharp increase in the sort of emergence of the golden age. But then at some point around here, they dated a little bit earlier, about 1600, it levels off and doesn't really go anywhere for the next 200 years. The same is true in a somewhat different way. If you look at the gray line here at Italy, you can see that, say, by 1300, they have very high income per capita. So there must have been growth before. But basically, from then on, it goes nowhere. And in fact, if anything, it goes down. The big jump up, of course, is the blue line, which is Britain after the 17th century. And that already starts to look at the effects of the Industrial Revolution. Of course, we could talk at great length about what's happening to China here, which is the green line. We'll have to leave that for another time. But what I'm really interested here is the question of what kind of mechanism prevented economic growth from starting much earlier. A couple of schools here, and I'm just going to mention them and not start arguing with the details because that would take too much time. But most economists, I think, still adhere to the notion that before the Industrial Revolution, it was really all Malthusian and the result of the sort of iron law of wages, meaning essentially that population growth will negate 
any kind of productivity growth, because as soon as income goes up, fewer people are dying, more people are born, and so population growth occurs, and then we'll undo the higher income in a sort of almost dialectical fashion. This is, of course, what Malthus and the entire classical school in economics believed, and there's still some people who adhere to that quite fervently. A different school, which is maybe less well-known, but something that I and some others strongly believe in, it blames political economy. Essentially, this is an extremely violent world full of people who are trying to extract wealth from their richer neighbors. So we would call these people bandits, or if you're an economist, you'd call them rent seekers. It boils down to the same thing. But what happens is if you have an area that experiences a level of prosperity much higher than its neighbors, it will attract these people trying to take its wealth and expropriate it. So these people could be internal, of course. They could be tax collectors or you know rent collectors or people like that. Or they could be external invaders who come in and essentially just empty out the country. In most cases, that would mean that these bandits not only take away the wealth, but they actually may have slaughtered the geese that laid the golden eggs. And this kind of Smithian growth is particularly vulnerable to this type of violence. And I think that is, to some extent, what's hitting Italy. Italy was extremely rich during the period of the Renaissance, but it keeps attracting these Spanish and French and German soldiers. And eventually, of course, that's what does it in. Now, For me, and this is what I want to talk about today, what really counted more than those two factors is the nature of innovation and technical change, which is, of course, the big thing that changed during the Industrial Revolution. Now, there's no question that humanity had always been inventive. In the Middle Ages, where, in fact, a period of major advances in many areas, and I've written a book about this, so I could talk about it at great length, But it's also true that this progress never reached the point in which it could affect economic growth. It was always in small industries, very slow advances. And it's based on things that are still important, but maybe not the only thing that matters now. But it's all based on sort of intuition, experience, serendipity, learning, and essentially just slow, cumulative, minor tweaks and improvements, which eventually tended to level off. Now, there are some so-called big inventions, of course, none bigger than the invention of the printing press in the 1450s, but that's not the rule, essentially. That's maybe the exception. And I hesitate to put it in a dismissive way, but it's fair to say that the people who invented stuff at this time essentially had no clue of why the things that they got to work actually were working, okay? And so here is a quote I'm very fond of. This is a world of engineering without mechanics, a world of iron making without metallurgy, farming without soil science, mining without geology, water power without hydraulics, dye making without organic chemistry, and medical practice without microbiology and immunology. I'm modesty prevents me from attributing this quote, but I think it does capture a little bit of the nature of technological progress at the time, with, you know, a few minor exceptions. And so what then happens during the Industrial Revolution or during the period of the Industrial Revolution is the following. Sustained economic growth becomes possible when all of those three mechanisms disappear, the Malthusian mechanism begins to weaken and eventually, of course, is basically gone. Conflicts between nations haven't quite disappeared, unfortunately, but their nature has changed and they've become less predatory. But what I want to really talk about is the third factor, namely the change in the nature of invention 
due to the exponential growth of useful knowledge. And that's where we come into the period that we'd be concerned in, with today, and that is that I'm submitting to you that between 1500 and maybe, or maybe a little bit earlier, maybe 1450, we can quibble about that, and say 1700, something begins to change in a specific part of the world, and that is in Europe. And what's happening there is, to put it very crudely, is it dawned upon more and more people that what they called useful knowledge, and which we'll call science and technology, could and should become the key to growing prosperity. And that's often captured by, you know, you can come up with many quotes of people saying that, but none said it better than Bacon, and Bacon was, of course, extraordinarily influential in the 17th and 18th century. So in the introduction to the Great Installation, he says that a true and lawful marriage between the empirical and the rational faculty out of which marriage, let us hope, there may spring helps to man and a line and race of inventions that may in some degree subdue and overcome the necessities and miseries of humanity. So he doesn't use the word economic growth there, but clearly that's what he has in mind. And I think it's this Baconian program, as it became known, that becomes the core of what I have called the Industrial Enlightenment of the late 17th and 18th century. And the Industrial Enlightenment is really a movement about economic progress. And basically has, I think, three components, okay? The first is that economic progress is possible and desirable. That's not the same thing, by the way. So you could argue that it's possible but not desirable, as some people are arguing today. You could argue that it's desirable but not possible, but they maintain both. Secondly... It basically claimed that this progress can be achieved only through increases in what they called useful knowledge and its dissemination and application to production. And third, and that's a very important component of it, is that that knowledge can only be applied successfully in the right institutional environment. And they went out to specify that, but I'm not going to get into that. So... That, of course, immediately raises one question which is quite important. And that is, so what are we talking about here? Are we talking about formal science so that people actually understand the physics and the chemistry and the biology underlying the processes that they are using? And was formal science very important to the Industrial Revolution? So there is a huge literature about this, which I used to teach, but there's this Clearly, a debate that hasn't been fully resolved. Many of the critical inventions we associate with the Industrial Revolution, particularly, I would say, in the cotton industry, were, as before, made by tinkerers, people who were persistent and inspired, but not necessarily scientifically trained, and that they required, in the words of one historian, little more mechanics than Archimedes knew. And some of these inventions were relatively simple. Now, that's not true for all of them. Others required some insights from formal science, even so they may not have fully understood what they were doing. That clearly is true for steam power. But it would never have been achieved without this sort of combination of dexterity, intuition, persistence, and luck that uh, was operating before. So it isn't like it switches from one mode of invention to another, as much as the old mode is now increasingly informed by the insights of science. And now, just 
maybe one or two more remarks about this, okay? First is there is enormous variation industry to industry and technique to technique about the importance of science. In some areas, and you know, this has been well documented, science really mattered. For instance, for gaslighting, which came online in the first years of the 19th century, you needed a field called pneumatic chemistry. There is the bleaching of textiles. Chlorine, well, you had to invent chlorine, which is done by chemists like Scheele and Bertolet. There is a long and complicated story about steam power, which I'm not going to get into today, but anybody who wants to know about this, I can send them to the literature. And there are things that were developed in the, in the 18th century through the use of mathematics, particularly, I think, in hydraulics and fluid dynamics and its application to water power. So it's probably fair to say that the glass during the Industrial Revolution was half empty and half full, and that's the kind of debate that doesn't go anywhere. But what is clear is that if this glass was half empty, it was slowly filling up during the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, the question is, where would a glass be fuller than elsewhere? And, of course, that depends on the difficulty of the issues involved and science's ability to crack them. And so if you look at the major areas in which there was progress in the 19th century, uh, steel making, hydraulics, electricity, engines, medicine, chemicals, so on, each followed its own trajectory because in some cases the problem were more difficult than in other. It is turned out to be easier to make wrought iron than to make steel. So wrought iron is cracked in 1785 and steel not before 1860. That's the kind of story that we have to look at. What is no longer in doubt is that regardless of whether they were successful or not, People believed firmly that the problems could be solved by more and better useful knowledge. And that, I think, is the impact of the Baconian program. Now, it's also fair to say that science is more than just knowledge of natural phenomena and regularity. It's a methodology of experimentation and of data keeping and of, of accuracy. But it's also sort of a cultural mindset that convinces more and more people that nature follows well-defined rules and that these rules can be understood and then deployed by people. And so one more remark about why this was successful, and that is it's not enough to just talk about science as such. What we have to stress is what I call the great complementarity between natural philosophy, that is to say what they call science, and practical arts, which we would call artisanship or technology. And of course, even if you had the insights from science, you had to be able to have the skilled artisans who could build what was on the blueprint, scale up models and make these machinery or instruments, not once or twice, but over and over and over again. And so that basically creates some kind of continuum between people who knew things and people who made things. A distinction that I have made, and I think is still useful, but it's clear that a lot of local knowledge was created by what some historians have called mindful hands, or you might just as well call them handy minds. And so the distinction between technology and science is more blurry than our minds would like them to be. And it's fair to say that knowledge was produced by a continuous range of people struggling with these issues. And a lot of knowledge is accumulated by what we may call practitioners, okay? So we look at architects, physicians, clockmakers, surveyors, you know, botanical collectors, you know, that kind of people. They all created this kind of useful knowledge, and we don't really have to choose if there had been no skilled craftsmen and engineers, particularly in Britain, 
I would say, the great inventors that Victorian hydrographers were so fond of would never have succeeded. So, so what would not have been able to make his machine without Wilkinson and Murdoch and others who sort of did the hard work for him? That said, I insist that if all Europe has had, had had was good and skilled artisans, there would have been no industrial revolution because then we know that by 1500, when the Europeans start exploring the world, they discover brilliant artisans all over the world, in China, in Japan, in India, in the Middle East. These were producing many goods that the Europeans had no clue of how to make and wanted desperately. And yet artisans alone did not give China or Japan an industrial revolution. They had to import that from Europe. And so let me give you two examples of this sort of collaboration between what we call technology and science. Some of it were actually concentrated in the mind of one person. So here's one such person. This is René Romure. These are his dates. So very much a prototype industrial enlightenment person, I would call him. He's trained as a mathematician, so obviously theoretically strong, a leading lifelong member of the Académie Royale. But if you look at his writings and what he was interested in, there's a whole list of very practical issues that he is concerned with. Iron and steel is one of the first to suggest actually the chemical properties of steel in the sort of odd nomenclature of uh, phlogiston chemistry. He was talking about porcelain and glazing, which was on everybody's mind in the 18th century. Entomology and pests, and there's significant in agriculture. He, he talked about the feasibility of glass fibers, how to make paper from wood. Yeah, on and on and on and on. So this is obviously a scientist with strong interest in technical issues. But there's also a social dimension to that. And here's the most, the most famous example of that. This is the Lunar Society of Birmingham. I think this picture is made up by a painter who wasn't there, but that hardly matters. You can see the moon in the background because they met only at full moon in, in Birmingham. And the guy on the right wearing the Yarmulke, I think, is Erasmus Darwin who was actually a scientist and the grandfather of Charles. And the others are sort of a mixture of applied people like Matthew Bolton and scientists and so on and so forth. So this is clearly where theoretical knowledge or scientific knowledge and practical knowledge of technology meet and collaborate. So just to summarize this, what I think is critical here says where modern economic growth generated was through a combination of attitude and aptitude, as I like to call it, okay, culture and skill. I should add, perhaps, that economic progress, of course, also needed this institutional environment I talked about earlier. You needed contract enforcement, you needed decent and honest government, you know, a whole list of things that all came together. And they all came together more than anywhere else in Britain say, in 1750 or 1800, and the rest of history, it spread to Europe and the rest of the world. Not all of this was for the good, I hasten to add. In many ways, this thing had many victims. But it's also true that in the end, I think the world today has experienced economic progress that was beyond anyone's wildest expectation. And despite the setback of the last few months, this will go on for a foreseeable future. And so just to sort of predict a little bit of what this means for the present and future of economic growth, I think this set of conditions that, that we're talking about and were, were laid down in the 18th century are still very much in place today. And to understand this, here's a quote from Alfred North Whitehead, now 
a century old almost. But he basically, you know, makes the point that the Industrial Revolution invented the method of invention by realizing not just the potential of science as a storehouse of idea, but coming up with the imaginative designs needed to bridge the gap between a scientific idea and production. And what he means by that, I think, is that increasingly what we observe is that people were curious to know how and why techniques worked the way they did, and once they did, you know, making further progress on it. So here is sort of one classic example. This is, we think of the Industrial Revolution being represented by the steam engine, and of course this is well known that the people who built steam engines actually didn't understand precisely the physics below it. And that this only happens in the 19th century. Here is the sort of famous step forward on this. This is Sadi Carnot's Réflexion sur la puissance motrice, du feu, in which he for the first time proposed what later became known as thermodynamics, which is the science that explains steam engines. And so it's interesting then that the it's not so much the science that explains the steam engine, it's the steam engine that explains the science. Now, that's not always the case, but this kind of back and forth is what creates the engine of modern economic growth. And so the reason that that's the case, and that sort of takes me into sort of making a little bit of a rash prediction about where technology is going, is that it isn't just that there's some kind of simple-minded linear model in which science leads to applied science and leads to technology and so on. But of course, there is the main important feedback between technology and science. And for me, that feedback is still fully represented by what Derek Price has called artificial revelation. And what Price pointed out, as obvious if you think about it, is that in order for science to advance, it needs better tools and instruments and things to work with that allow us to observe objects we weren't meant to see and to compute things we weren't meant to compute. So you know, a famous example, of course, is the scientific revolution of the 17th century, which people like Galileo and Hooke had tools that simply weren't available um, to anybody before. They could see things that nobody else could see. So if that's the case, then we are in luck because even this is the most cursory look at what is happening today would tell you that scientific progress is moving ahead at an astonishingly rate. In large part, not because we are smarter, because I don't think we are, but we have better tools. We have tools that weren't imagined even a generation ago, okay, you know, and so you go any where in any scientific journal, and God knows there are tens of thousands of them, and you realize the things that people are working with. They're working with things that 20 years ago, nobody would even dream about. And machine learning, genetic editing tools, microscopes that keep getting better and better, allowing us to see things at the molecular level. Unimaginably powerful computers that can not only compute things that were uncomputable before, but also store vast amounts of data, which is, of course, what you need for machine learning, and lasers, which have turned out into be an unbelievably useful scientific tool. Now, given all those tools, it seems to me that it's impossible for science not to keep advancing at an ever faster rate. And so I think one of the lessons of how we came to be where we are is that we're still basically doing the same thing, only better. And so from the point of view of useful knowledge and just that point of view, I think the future looks very promising. And those views that say, you know, everything that can 
be invented, has been invented, or what is the latest term people like? The low-hanging fruits have all been picked. That's the term that some pessimists are using. I think that's all nonsense. I think we're just getting started. That said, I think we all understand if you've been alive for the last 10 years that we could screw it up. And rather than going into detail, here is one statement made a century again, which must be the understatement of the millennium by one of the greatest intellects of the 20th century. And that's sort of a good summary of what's institutional progress versus technological progress. This is the closing paragraph of the future of an illusion. And what Freud says is, while mankind has made continual advances in its control over nature and may be expected to make still greater ones, it is not possible to establish with certainty that a similar advance has been made in the management of human affairs. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Leah Markey from the Newbury Library, and I'm here today with Paula Finland from Stanford and Joel Moker from Northwestern. Uh, hopefully you've heard our presentations already. We're here now on June 18th uh, to discuss technology then and now in relation to the upcoming exhibition at the Newbury devoted to Renaissance inventions, Stradonis's Nova Reperta engravings. So just to remind you of the print series that this exhibition is focused on, I'm showing you the frontispiece of the Nova Reperta that Paula and I spoke about briefly. The series is composed of 20 engravings that represent novelty and invention from the 16th century, actually the post-classical world. Uh, the first 10 prints are here, the second 10 prints are here, and we'll come back to them. So I ended my presentation with three themes that will be highlighted in the exhibition. The relationship between the local and the global, the role of collaboration for invention, and the negative impact of technology. So I thought we could return to these points and use them as a, a way to discuss some of the points that both Paula and Joel raised in their wonderful presentations, because I think they, they nicely unite our topic. So I'll just begin with the relationship between the local and the global, which I put up the Guayacum engraving here because it epitomizes this, this idea of the conflict between the two. Uh, Guayacum is a wood from the Caribbean, which is brought to Europe in the 16th century to treat this mysterious disease of syphilis, uh, which is affecting the local populations. So I thought we could stop here and I can stop sharing my screen and ask Paul and Joel what their take is on this local global conflict. Paula discussed printing as a global phenomenon. And Joel brought up the global quite frequently in his discussion uh, with this great chart and also with his discussion of local knowledge. So I'll invite you to now to comment further on, on this topic. Oh, well, thank, thank you so much, Leah. It's great. It's such a pleasure to be here uh, in conversation with the two of you. And the first thing that comes to mind, actually, having listened to your discussion about uh, Guayacum and syphilis, right, from the Stradonis print, is that's a great example of 
a subject that becomes a debate about the local global is that the best cure right and where the, the perennial issue where syphilis comes from that's debated by so many renaissance physicians and everyone else i mean we know that paracelsus uh famously says this is diseases must be local right they cannot be global they're not coming from far away if it's happening in germany it was created in germany therefore we have to look for a cure that is nearby, right? And this is how he comes up with mercury treatment. So we, we also know that Stradonis has made a choice, right? He's made a choice towards the global, uh, the remote cure, and one presumes also a kind of more global understanding of this disease. Uh, but next to that, any contemporary would have known that there was another treatment that Stradonis doesn't depict. That's right. Uh I just maybe I'd like to you know, generalize that just a teeny tiny bit and, you know, point out what, you know, economic historians have been saying now for, for a very long time. And that is that 16th and 17th century are really the great era of um, what we call sort of ecological imperialism in which the voyages that Europeans started making around the world lead to an absolutely incredible exchange of plants and animals and ideas between all continents. And what we see happening at the local level in Europe is a whole bunch of foods and drinks that are imported from places very far away, all of a sudden start popping up as normal part of consumption. People start sitting in coffee houses, you know, eat potatoes, smoke tobacco, uh, you know, eat polenta. I mean, all of those foods and 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 uh, drinks and other customs are part of this, uh, you know, uh, uh, Colombian exchange. And it is sometimes named, maybe not quite appropriately, of course, because a lot of it is actually coming in, uh, coming in from Asia. And we're not just talking about um, this tree that's supposed to help you against syphilis, but we can think of the sort of chinchona bark that was brought, brought in from South America, which helped against malaria, which actually did work, I think, uh, a little bit better. It wasn't perfect, but it was the sort of substance that helped against quinine um, that was used later as quinine, I'm sorry. And, um, and what is striking, and I just want to point this out because you mentioned the global, is that it isn't just Europe that's affected, but in fact, Europeans are actually moving stuff around between other continents. So they are importing cassava into Africa and peanuts into China. And, you know, all of a sudden, within a you know, fairly short period as these things go, um, you know, some form of a, I would almost, you know, say ecological globalization is taking place and is affecting local consumption patterns everywhere. If I could just follow up for a second, something that occurs to me that we could throw into the conversation, Leah, and, you know, in response to Joel's is also to ask this question is, so what aspects of European technologies get in imported and what sort of patterns do we see there as well? And I want to offer, of course, the example of firearms and the way in which they are famously um, basically retro-engineered right in Japan. That's a very famous example. And the other one is, of course, the printing press, right? The centerpiece of the Stradonis. You know, the printing press is being put on ships and reassembled in Mexico City, um, 
in in Japan, in Goa, in Macau, you know, it's traveling the, the, the commercial and the missionary network. So when we look at maps of the printing press in this period, you know, you look at there, there are these dynamic maps, say the University of Iowa has done of the growth of the printing press. And it's always struck me that uh, they tend to sort of show you the rapid growth within Europe and they tend to not show you the fact that it actually continues beyond that within the 16th century. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the printing press, it's not everywhere. It's where Europeans travel and are investing in projects of faith and knowledge. Yeah. But, and therefore they want to translate and print the word of God. That usually is the first reason that you have the printing press or you want to print uh, a Nahuatl Spanish dictionary, which is an example of early printed book in the Americas, right? And it's quite quick. I mean, it only takes about a century. Um, but it is still a century. I mean, so we're, we're also supposed to be talking about, you know, technology then and now. And so I wanted to ask you as well, how is the local and global change today? Is there a distinction to be made? Uh, maybe this is more of a question for Joel, but if we bring it into contemporary times, it seems to me that lo local knowledge becomes global immediately. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's unfortunate or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, um, that is, of course, quite correct. I mean, in principle, it isn't all that different. It's only faster, much faster. In fact, it's very often instantaneous, you know, and, and um, it's hard to know if that's the good news or the bad news. I must say, in some ways, it's the good news, but then you start looking at the lightning quick spread of the COVID-19 virus, and you compare that to the very slow movement of diseases in those, well, you know, eventually they got there too, but uh, things, things, things are are slower and um, it is totally clear that what is happening today i mean regardless of you know the backlash against globalization it's sort of here to stay and um, it may be modified it may be qualified but essentially uh, what is true in the modern day and I, I you know this is a statement which i'll probably regret making but i'll make it anyway is uh, if something inv is invented somewhere, it is invented everywhere. And, um, you know, it, it, that's a bit of an exaggeration, of course, but, but you know what I mean? I mean, one, you know, somebody comes up uh, with a good idea, uh, you know, it, it's impossible to keep it, to, to keep it effectively secret. It, you know, and, and, and the idea becomes spreads all over the world and people respond to it. And so, the distinction between the local and the global is sort of slowly getting to be blurry. And the big cultural question of our age is to what extent are we, will we able to uh, maintain our local features? And in some sense, I think the backlash against globalization, which we're now experiencing, is an attempt by local customs, local culture, local habits, and so on and so forth to protect themselves against this sort of McDonaldization uh, of the world. That's been going on for a long time. Uh, I actually don't think there will be complete homogenization of the world, but clearly the, the world will become more homogeneous uh, than it used to be. Again, I don't know, I'm not sure if that's the good news or the bad news, um, uh, but, but there we are. Maybe we should take a moment now and, and think about the agents of change. And this was another theme that we all hit on. Uh, which relates to our discussion of local and global um, because there's the question of practitioners and where these practitioners are and who, you know, who's creating invention. And with, in Paula's talk, we heard a bit about this 
anxiety about naming adventures. Um, and we see that a little bit in these engravings as well. You see group activities, but at the same time, you see some sole inventors. Um, with the invention of printing, there's, there's interest in naming Gutenberg, even though there's still some uncertainty about who Gutenberg is exactly. And, um, and then Joel also points out that there's a group mentality. There's a social aspect to technology. So I thought we could also speak a little bit about this conflict between the, the group and the sole inventor and how that is changing today, or maybe it's not changing at all. Oh, you know, I think you're going to have the most interesting things to say about how we measure this by, you know, what's what's happening today. I mean, you know, we, you know, the, those of us who work on the Renaissance, the early modern period, I mean, have known for a long time the importance of studying the workshop, right? The workshop is it's 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 the fundamental economic unit. It is a social organization, as Leah talks about, right? It has a sociology as well as essential to not just the economy, but the political economy of many of these cities and states. Um, and and yet the, the idea of the individual adventure, inventor is something that is also essential to, to the Renaissance, right? What it means to invent in, in a broad Renaissance sense, uh, you know, so it means something much broader than we think of today. Um, is is something that they're trying to sort of puzzle out and figure. And I mean, this is why Francis Bacon imagines a college of inventors in his writing, right? He wants to have a college of inventors. For him, Columbus is an inventor. So he and Stradano share the same view of whether it's Columbus or Vespucci, somebody invented that, you know, quote unquote, discovery of the new world, the conquest of the new world, right? As we would say. Um, so they are trying to, they're also, I think, expanding this definition of an inventor. So maybe that raises an interesting contemporary question, because without being able to fully nail this down, my, my instinct is that we're also in a period in which the idea of invention is expanding, because so many of our inventions nowadays are not just tangible, but intangible. You know, I always like to joke that we're reinventing, you know, the water we swim in, right? Whether it's, you know, in other words, that sort of digital universe is a kind of water we're swimming in. And, and it's made, sub, it's made sub, subjects like the history of intellectual property, right? And, uh, you know, so much more interesting uh, than they were, uh, you know, say when I was in grad school, you know, when, when it seemed like a kind of old subject that people who went to the patent office studied. Which was also interesting too, but you know, it, it was more contained. Like it seemed more of a subject in the past, and now I think these questions about you know invention, prop, intellectual property are very much of the present. Which is probably a good segue for Joel because he has thought about this much more than me. Here, here, here is what I would add to what uh, uh, Paula said. I mean, who who is an inventor? And you know, if you just define inventor somebody who comes up with a new idea that has practical implications and, you know obviously the giant of this age is leonardo you know whose sketches are full of inventions so to speak but we don't think of him primarily as an inventor for one very simple reason and that is that brilliant as these things were by and large the artisans of that age couldn't 
actually carry them out. And the same is true for, you know, the, the calculating machine that Blaise Pascal built. And, you know, on and on and on. People had ideas all along. The real question is, can we, uh, could people actually turn these ideas into uh, uh, practical technology and then scale them up? And the great uh, 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 feature of the printing press is that it could be done. Okay, he invented it, and in fact, it's not surprising that Gutenberg actually was a metallurgist, right? He was a, he was a, he was a goldsmith and a silversmith. He knew metals, and 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 the, and the crux of the printing press, of course, is the metallurgy, not the idea of of of, uh, uh, of 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 printing itself, which had been around for a while. And we think then of inventors really coming to their own only in during the industrial revolution at least in terms of them making a big impact on the economy somebody like simon steven you know one of my one of my heroes you know okay you know wonderful guy full of ideas but you know let's face it i mean we don't see submarines running around the naval battles you know during the uh, subsequent dutch and english wars okay they, you know he, he built a prototype it wasn't it wasn't really uh, uh, seriously possible the big success is when the inventors have the kind of artisanal superstructure that can carry these things out. And I think that is why it happens in, 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 in Britain in the 18th century, because Britain has far more of these people than, than anybody else, you know. Uh, I have a little poem which I will cite to you, which I tell my student, which never gets a laugh, right? I only get a laugh from economic historians, but it says, um, uh, let me see if I, if I, if I, uh, yes, the difference between Leonardo and what was that what had Wilkinson and Leonardo did not. And what that poem really tells you is that somebody like Wilkinson, okay, who could make those cylinders, not just crudely, but at a very high level of accuracy and precision, which required a very fine artisanal, artisanal skills. That's what makes the difference, you know? Good ideas are, you know, I don't want to say a dime a dozen, but they pop out throughout history. Uh, the, the question is, can we turn them into uh, reality by having the kind of practical skills that are so strongly complementary to new ideas? And it's, you know, it isn't just the artisans, and it isn't just inventors. It's the collaboration and the complementarity between the two. That's I think the key to success, and you're absolutely right, Paula, it all happens in the workshops, and that's where these artisans are. I couldn't agree with you more. That's all the poetry you're going to get from me today, but it's a great poem. It's a great <laughs> poem. <funny>. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing that really surprised me about your presentations is how very positive they were, um, because what strikes me about the print series is how it's, it's celebrating these inventions in a way, but at the same time, it's pointing out a lot of the negative aspects of technology. Uh, clearly in the gunpowder image, but then the other engravings as well are not necessarily demonstrating the, the good that comes out of change. Um, you have in the America print, a clear reference to conquest. You have a cannib cannibals in the background. Uh, it's referencing colonization. 
Uh, we already talked a little bit about guayacum. And then in the second series, or the second group of engravings, um, you, there's more prints referencing warfare here with armor polishing. And there's this conflict between man and the machine that's highlighted throughout with the mills and um, the presses. So, and this also cam comes out in Paula's presentation. Um, this is something we're going to highlight in the exhibition with more materials. We're going to have a, a small canon from the Art Institute in the show. Uh, and Paula also brought up the relationship between man versus the machine. Which especially, and, and she made the interesting point also that Leonardo omits the human form in these, uh, I love this idea of these anatomized uh, machines that Leonardo draws. Um, and then Joel's presentation was also, I thought he ended on a very positive note uh, about technology, but I just thought it would be worth talking a little bit about the negative effects of technology and how they relate to the print series and connect to colonialization, conquest, cannibalism, war, disease. Um, what is man's relationship to the machine? Is Was there some fear of the negative uh, invention? Uh, do we have that today? Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's an interesting meditation on how to read all of these images that you've thought about more than any of us. How do we read all of Stradonis's images together, right? What kind of message do we make together when we add up these 20 images, right, that are done in these two series? And yeah, I, I do find myself thinking that in some way he understands that even though he doesn't offer the kind of strong critique that, say, uh, you know, Las Casas does in his short account of the destruction of the Indians. Uh, so that's an interesting point of comparison, right, that there is already a strong verbal critique of all that is negative about the European presence in the Americas and what they have done. And there's an Italian people. source that he would have known, you know, Benzoni, um, yeah. and he was, he was clearly reading Oviedo um, and citing him on, on the drawings. Yeah, exactly. So he seems he seems very well informed about everything, right? You do have the sense that he's somebody who has, you know, I mean, I ended up talking about the the literature on invention because it was it was on my mind, right? But it's clear that he's read these other things. So I appreciate you bringing that in. So he's he has absorbed the critiques, um, and. Yeah, I mean, so then how do we read, for instance, his image of sugar, right? I mean, we, of course, read his image of sugar uh, in relationship to Sidney Mintz's classic book, Sweetness and Power. We can't look at that image without reading Mintz. I think Mintz even used that image in his book, if I recall. Um, Actually, he doesn't, strangely. He doesn't. Oh, I don't I think so. No, I don't. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know, does he understand, well, or, or is he just really focused on the fact that there is an ongoing discussion uh, at the Medici court about whether they're going to have a sugar colony in Brazil. And so this yeah. is very positive and aspirational actually to join what we know is a sort of awful project, right? That has been migrating, you know, uh, with you know these European projects from the Mediterranean now into you know the Americas. I want to just briefly raise the example of the negative consequences of printing because we almost never talk about this. And I have a long-standing fascination with um, resistance to print culture. I mean, years ago when I was in grad school, I took a course with Roger Chartier when 
you know, he was doing all his, you know, just incredible work, right, on, on you know, that he's still doing on printing. And, and I began this conversation with him because I said, you know, I'm fascinated with these people who choose not to print. Why are they doing that? Are they resisting? Is there, is there something they don't want out of printing? And I, I have to say many years later, I'm still thinking about that. Um, I'm thinking about the critiques of printing that happened in the first half century, uh, you know, Trithemius's in Praise of Scribes, where he talks about, you know, the professions that are lost. So it's not the positive model of the printer's workshop, it's the what's going to happen to the scribal workshop, um, to uh, the dignity of the scribe, right? How, you know, and, and to the sacred nature of a text that is written by a hand that is divinely made by God, and, you know, the machine is intruding and displacing all of that. So that's one negative. The other negative, and this is one I think Stradonis and his contemporaries certainly is um, the, the, the negative reaction to the content that came forth from the printed press, right? And getting all this sort of controversial knowledge into a broader reading audience. We're in the age of the beginnings of the mechanisms of uh, Catholic censorship, right? The index of prohibited books has now been established for a few decades. Uh, the Roman Inquisition and many local physicians are taking an interest in um, controversial knowledge and they see the printing press as the engine, right, that facilitates um, greater access to controversial ideas. And, and so, you know, the idea of the Catholic reading list is emerging, right? Yeah. So printing for that group is absolutely controversial. Yeah, and you can imagine the equivalent in a political context as well. It's why Machiavelli will end up on the index of prohibited books, of course. Uh, so those are those are a couple of ideas. I'm sure Joel will add some others as well. Yeah, I think you're right, though, that there's this anxiety about information overload that we're still experiencing today, too. And and that Joel actually he when he just earlier in our conversation today brought up this concern about the homogeneity of the world. Uh, Maybe you want to speak a little bit more in, about that as well. May I say something about you know, the negative effect of the printing press, which, um, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the, of the uh, resistance to it. And, you know, uh, the most you know, striking case of successful resistance to the printing press is, of course, the Ottoman Empire, which for centuries was successfully able to ban any printing in either Arabic or Turkish. Or Turkish languages, and the only printing press that were out there were printing press that were you know, run by Jews and Greeks, printing with their alphabet. And um, so they resisted it. And I would say, you know, on balance, that probably <laughs> contributed to the sharp decline. And even, even until the present day, the rather pitiful state of, um, you know, science and literature in um, the Islamic world, um, or certainly in the Middle East, I don't want to generalize too much, you know, in, into Africa and Indonesia, but certainly in the Middle East, you know, you look at the numbers of the number of, you know, of, of books published in places like, you know, Egypt and Jordan and Lebanon and so on, and, you know, it's, it's, it's compared to the population controlling for income per capita and literacy and so on, it, 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 it's really pitiful. And so, um, I think one could generalize that and, and say the following. Um, by definition, every invention has unanticipated consequences. Um, 
or what Edward Kenner called sort of bite back effect, right? So something happens that nobody thought was going to happen, and now all of a sudden, look, look what, look what it's, look what it's doing to us. Okay, so the mother of all bite back effect, of course, is global warming, in which people start to burn fossil fuels, not having the foggiest idea. Say, oh, this is great, this is cheap, because there's a lot of, 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 of worms and so on and so forth. And now all of a sudden, we're all scratching our head and said, well, you know, in seven, in 1850, let alone in six, in 1700s, who knew? That this what burning coal and and peat and 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 so on and so forth would do to us. Okay, so these are, this is, I say, the nature of technological change. You know, if it if it didn't have unanticipated consequences, it wouldn't be a, a a real invention. So I once made a list and tried to find out any invention that didn't have this feature. It's very hard to find it out. In some cases, you can sort of say, on balance, you know, you you compare the costs with the benefits, and you say, God, I wish we hadn't made this invention. You know, asbestos is my is my is my favorite example, but you know, or, or the introduction by Thomas Midgley of of leaded gasoline. You know, I mean, there are few inventions where you really go, man, had we only known, we would have never done this. With, with leaded gasoline, actually, they knew, but had a different story. Anyway. Uh, but by and large, you know, this is, I would say, the inevitable price for progress. And um, the alternative would be to do what the Japanese did after 1600. Just try to close yourself off as, as, as well as you can from the rest of the world and hope nobody comes knocking on your door, which, of course, eventually people did. And, and trying to ban, to ban Western technology as much as they can. In a way, that's what... The Qing Chinese do it well, also much less 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 uh, successfully. Um, in the end, these strategies are self-defeating, not because they're inherently bad, but because the rest of the world doesn't follow them, and the gap keeps increasing. And that too is a consequence of globalization. Um, you know, the Chinese Empire felt not because it was inherently bad, but because after fifteen. Uh, after 1840, you know, uh, uh, Europeans start showing up and, and increasingly weakening the empire. And the same is true everywhere else. So this is the world we live in. This is maybe not the world we would all like to have, but that's, that's how things worked out. Well, maybe that's a good place to end. This is the world we live in. Um, you know, mixed response uh, with every invention. There's both the positive and a negative side that we're stuck with in some ways. Um, do you have any other thoughts or points you'd like to conclude with before we end our conversation today? Well, I think in a way, to return back to Stradonis, I mean, you've got me thinking about to what extent he really also is basically saying that this is the world we live in, in its good and bad consequences. And, you know, here is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. like. Here is what it looks like. Here are some, not all, of the core ingredients. And look how they have accumulated since the 13th century, right? Um, you know, which is roughly the earliest, roughly think of the stirrup, for instance. You know, yeah. that's roughly the earliest, right? He's picking a world that starts in the ages. So, you know, he's giving us an allegory of but he is also giving us a portrait, right, of the world that they have created. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and, and yes, some of the building blocks that are going to be carried forward into the world that Joel talks about that are going to keep accelerating and keep continuing 
uh, to accelerate the pace of these changes to the point that it finally does, as, as Joel understands very well, much better than I do, become something entirely different, right? Yeah. These are core ingredients that then, at a certain point, combine with other things in a different context than Stradatus himself is focused on. He's not thinking about England. Francis Bacon will think about England. He's not thinking about England. Uh, but yeah, then it's going to become something. This is going to, as you say, going to take a while. Um, but maybe we're at the beginnings of that process that will eventually, you know, it's the tinder that sparks the flame, something to that effect. Yeah, one thing we're really hoping to ask our audience members of at this exhibition is what are today's Nova Reperta? Um, if you had to choose your 20 Oy. yeah, technological innovations since Stradonis's list, you know, what, what would they be? And how would you represent them today? In what medium? You know, um, so this is this is what we're really hoping to get at uh, through this exhibition as well, and mm -hmm. and because uh, they're in engraved form, they're in books. Um, how would we present the Nova Aperta today, and and with with what objects, with what people and things? May I just end up with one one more reflection of something that, that I've, you know, I'm trying to. The point I'm trying to make wherever I get a chance to have, to have a captive audience. And now people think of me as some kind of technological optimist. In fact, you said so <laughs> yourself. And um, I, I, I don't want to not going to go out on a sort of note of unbridled optimism in this sort of dark age and point out something that uh, I sort of noticed in economic history, having been in the field now for half a century. And, and, and one of the things that, that, that's quite striking is that we always speak in the, the, the words we use. We talk about technological progress. It's always technological progress. You know, there is a built-in assumption there that there is a trend. There is, you know, a, a, a non-stationary process in which things are getting better, largely because technology, for give or take, is sort of accumulative. And, and so, you know, we, we keep adding to it, and so it gets bigger and bigger. We never talk about institutional progress. We talk about institutional mm -hmm. change. And I think this reflects sort of an, an almost subconscious notion that we think technology is getting better, but institutions aren't. You know, that we really, you know, they go, they get, there are periods when they get better, then they get worse, then they get better, then they get worse. But on the whole, we don't see a, a trend toward, you know, better government, better institutions, more freedom, more civil liberties, blah, 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 blah. We can debate whether that's actually the case, but certainly that's, that's the presumption. And that, what that will, of course, means is that the gap between technology, between what we can do and, and institutions, which is what we will end up doing with it, keeps growing. That's a source of incredible concern. And mm -hmm. I think we all can think of, of examples in which modern technology will be abused by people who control bad institutions you know, to monitor and spy on their populations, to control them in various ways, to destroy enemies. I mean, we think of nuclear war, we think about, you know, the Chinese totalitarianism, I mean, endless ways in which technology can be used. And so I would fall back on, on I mean, this is probably going to make everybody smile when you reminded me, what is, you know, Kranzberg's first law, which is technology is neither good, it's not bad, nor is it neutral. 
And, uh, and when I first heard it, I thought, what the hell does it mean? Now that I have many years later, I actually realized what it really means. And I think this is, again, a feature of the growing gap between technology and institutions. And um, there is no reason to be terribly optimistic there. So I I'm I'm hate to end this on a minor note, but, you know, we've all been reading the papers for the last four years. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a big distinction between then and now, um, that this, in this global age, uh, institutions are much more powerful than they were. But not necessarily in any definable sense better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it brings to mind, um, to the extent that there was any awareness of something like this in this earlier period, it was found in the growing obsession to not only have, but to discuss ciphers, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's ciphers, which is something that, of course, Stradonis doesn't depict, but say Pancharoli talks about when he talks about, you know, what are the nature of inventions. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is on the one hand, it has an antiquity, on the other hand, it really very new and becomes all the more important. It's a kind of beginning of, a, a, you know, a certain, these ways of controlling, right, the message, controlling the means of communication. And of course, the person who can code it, right, I mean, all, all of these states have these experts who are often trained in mathematics, mm -hmm. you know, who are either creating, you know, the supposedly next unbreakable cipher, or they're decoding somebody else's, you know, mm -hmm. and so there is already a hint of this dark side, right, of the information economy, the connectedness of things, in that along with the other things that we've discussed. But this, yeah. this of course, is one that ends up being hard to visualize. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the culture but, of secrecy but is not that... that. Yeah, it's there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I will. I just want to thank you both for this wonderful conversation and for your beautiful presentations. I hope we will all meet together in person someday, and uh, I'd I'm, I'd love to have give you the opportunity to see the exhibition as well. When does it start, Lee? Hopefully in the fall. So it's when scheduled. When was it supposed to have started? It was supposed to open in March or no April. April. Uh, we were ready in March, uh, and it was mm. supposed to open in mid-April. But uh, we have hope for the fall, and we will keep you posted about that. And we'll also have some great digital resources related to the exhibition online. So, Yeah, I hope that I get to see it. And I also want, of course, it's nice to put in a plug that Leah has done. For those of you listening, Leah's done a fabulous catalog with a set of colleagues. Uh, so this, I assume, is going to be available you know, for yeah. uh, purchase fairly soon, right? Yeah, it's, it's, that actually came out in March. Our book is out, oh, that's and, um, and it's an incredible collaboration with wonderful scholars in the field and interdisciplinary look at the engravings. So great. Yeah. So thank you again. All right, everybody stay safe. Please. Stay, yeah, stay yeah, safe. Exactly. Thanks so much, Leah, for organizing. And this. Oh, and thank, thank you, you to the consortium. Thank you so much to yes, the consortium. Yes, actually, for, let's thank the consortium yeah. <laughs> the hands that have made this all possible. Behind the scenes. Now. All right. <laughs> Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. everybody.